Welcome to another Day from the Bridge. This is Rick Jones, captain of Fishbait Marketing, and we're glad you're with us today. Uh, there's a little hint of fall today in the air. Uh, you know, people forget, everybody thinks September is, uh, is fall, but you know, fall doesn't end or doesn't begin until the 22nd of September. And usually in the South, September is probably the hottest month of the year, I think, mostly because we're just sick of heat. And um, we're ready for some fall weather. But today we've got a little bit of a hint of fall in the air. Uh, Today we're going to continue our discussions about corporate sponsorship sales as we focus on developing a proposal. Uh, We'll have new editions of the Tuesday Tip and On the Road with Rick. And we have a very special treat today as my guest angler is Stephanie Darden-Bennett, the President and Chief Creative Officer of Prismatic an advertising, branding, graphic design, and marketing communications agency with offices in both Orlando and New Orleans. I'm so excited to have her on the show today. So let's get started. When I'm fishing for bass on a lake, one of the key elements is how I present the bait to the fish, where I cast, how I move the bait in such a way that it attracts a fish. We talked about how important bait is to selling sponsorships. The proposal is how you show the bait to the prospect. In a perfect world, you will give them your proposal always in person. But unfortunately, we don't live in a perfect world. And sometimes we have to send them the proposal in advance. But remember, this comes after lots and lots and lots of understanding of their brand their needs, their opportunities, their budgets, and the timing of their activities. Today, we're going to discuss what to send if you have to. And then next week, we're going to dive into presentations. So let's talk about what you send. Well, firstly, you send nothing generic. (laughs) You send no prefix packages, levels, and pricing. I see this happen all the time. Time after time, people will send the same old thing. They may just try to spell check and change the name in there, uh, but it makes absolutely no sense because it does not give them the idea that you really understand their brand and what they're trying to do. You need to totally customize your presentation specifically for their business and for their needs and desires that you've already spent hours discovering. Whenever I send something, I like to use their logos and colors in the presentation. You know, the proposal allows the mind to expand. And I like to say the mind, once expanded, will fight contraction. Uh, You want to blow it up big where they see themselves and they see their brand in the context of your event or organization. And we've talked earlier about my concept of the omelet station that everybody's going to get eggs, but you're going to customize what you want in your omelet. In this case, though, you've got to sort of predetermine what you think their omelet wants to look like. You've got to give them an idea of the ingredients that they might want or need. And that's strictly designed and specifically designed to let them know you have done your homework and you've listened to them because it's about them and not about you. Now, the correct rights and benefits will then lead to what we call thought starters that will engage in discussions to lead to the real deal. Because the truth is, 99 out of 100 times, 
people will not buy the proposal you're sending or presenting to them. It's going to morph. It's going to evolve. It's going to be more of their, uh, you know, they're, they're going to build things that they want and not what you want. Uh, but the thought starters allow you to begin to have a dialogue about what you want. Uh, you know, again, this is just the start of orchestrating an agreement. I usually call in advance of sending something to the prospect, even if I have to just leave a voice message that says, hey, I'm sending you a proposal via email, or even better, I'm sending it via UPS or FedEx. Um, Let me tell you a quick story. We were pitching Sarah Lee's Olympic program a few years ago, and we needed to tell our story in a unique way. And so what we did was we built one gigantic scrapbook, a giant scrapbook of the work we had previously done for other clients. And so we told our story with pictures and collaterals and things in this scrapbook. And then it told the story of our agency. It told the story of the work that we had done. And then when you open the last two pages of the scrapbook, we had taken chalk and we had outlined where pictures would go and collaterals would go for them when they tell their story. It was a very successful way of differentiating us from other agencies that were pitching, and ultimately we got the business. We also did something interesting. When they were contemplating who they were going to invite to pitch their business, and we had submitted our collaterals, we knew that four of their key executives were attending an Olympic um, conference at the Broadmoor in Colorado Springs, Colorado, and so every night we would slide a different letter under uh, their hotel room from one of our clients talking about how good we were and how they should consider uh, what we're doing. Uh, That was probably even better than a proposal. It was an endorsement from people that had actually worked with us. You know, now once you've sent the proposal, you need to call and make sure they got it because a lot of times things get lost. You know, FedEx packages don't arrive or they get lost in the mailroom or something along those lines. You also ask if they have any initial questions, but then you ask the most important question of all, when can we meet? Because we've got to have the meeting. Because you're going to have to get the meeting to make the sale. Now here's today's Tuesday tip. Two of my favorite gurus are Bob Bodine and John Maxwell. Both are authors, public speakers, and business leaders. Bob actually runs a search firm that places people in the sports and entertainment industry. John Maxwell is arguably the leading expert on leadership in the world. Both of these guys talk about the concept of who-dos. Who do you know that I need to know? Have you thought about that? Do you have a list of people you want to meet? And do you ask others that know you who they know that you should know? Start asking that question today and you'll see how many new people you'll get to meet. And that's your Tuesday tip. I'm so excited today to have Stephanie Darden Bennett as my guest angler. She's both the president and chief creative officer of Prismatic, a very unique agency. She attended both Florida State University and Central Florida University and now has run Prismatic for 17 years. Let's welcome a real talent 
to the bridge. Stephanie, welcome to the bridge. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, give us a little bit of your background. Um, I, you know, I in your intro, I talked about the fact you'd been to both FSU and Central Florida. Which which one of those two is your school? Are are, are you conflicted? <laughs> Depends which one has a, the winning football season. <laughs> no, I. Then then we'll add to the mix the Ohio State Buckeyes since I think myself and all three of my sisters were born and raised to be Buckeye football players. So very confusing in our household. <laughs> yes, um, that happens a lot uh, in in my household too. My father-in-law went to Florida. My brother-in-law went to Florida State. And that's always interesting trying to navigate uh, those wars from that standpoint. So, So once you got out of school... Um, what, what'd you do first? Yeah, well, it was great. I had a wonderful bridge. Um, I'd maintained freelance clients throughout, um, you know, college. And so, you know, as soon as I graduated, I, um, continued that, but then I also had an entree with, um, being a part of an internal marketing department for a fortune 500 company. Um, you know, the awesome thing was, again, it was a great job right out of school, learned a lot. It was very fast paced. However, it was a dot-com company and shortly thereafter the bubble burst. Um, so with that bubble burst, obviously came an immediate, uh, change <laughs> in job position. Um, they laid off, I think 70% of the team, uh, at that point, um, which pivoted me into my next position, um, which ended up being art director with a local agency here in town. Um, and, but after about, I would say a year or so of that, um, you know, I, I just kind of got a little restless and, you know, the fact that I'd maintained freelance clients, um, you know, that entrepreneurial spirit, I think was, was always there and strong. And, um, so basically by the age of 22, I, um, founded the company along with, uh, two partners at the time. And, uh, my uncle was really pivotal in that. He, um, very strong businessman and, um, you know, wonderful supporter. And, um, so I would say that, you know, he helped lend the business brains. Um, and I had, I think, um, you know, enough guts and didn't have enough fears at that age <laughs> to where I thought, yep, let's do this. And, uh, the rest of history. Yeah. You know, my wife talks a lot about, um, the fact that when we founded our first agency, uh, that we were just stupid and, and we didn't know any better. And had we known what we you know, didn't know, we might not have done it. But I've always said the the two most important ingredients for any entrepreneur are first guts and second grit. And I don't and I don't know how to teach either one of them. You know, you, I think you're almost wired to be willing to make a leap. And obviously you said your uncle had some skills that gave you a little bit of a safety net, but not much. And then, and then it's about grit. It's about just getting up every day and trying to be great. Uh, and you've been at it for a good while now. Yeah, 17 plus years later, you know, and I, I look back and, you know, again, it was, a, you know, launching a company after the dot-com bubble bursts, you know, again, I think to your point, you know, there's a little bit of, uh, you know, just naivety and foolishness. And yet, thank goodness, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled that it happened and, you know, ate a lot of ramen noodles <laughs> early on. That was, I think, like the daily food choice. Um, and I think one of the, the funniest memories I have is, you know, a client of ours um, who, who was there from the very beginning and, you know, stuck with us. 
um, you know, after a while reflected sweetly but hilariously back on our offices. And she's like, you know, the first one was kind of like a crack house. And the second one you moved on up and it was like a frat house. <laughs> so, <laughs> I got a huge kick out of that. You know, and fast forward to now, you know, we've, you know, we, we've definitely moved on up. So. <laughs> well, talk a little bit about the evolution, you know, 17 years of an evolution of the agency. I always like to talk about an agency's North Star or, you know, what is the, the kind of key product offering or key service that you offer? I'm sure that over a 17-year period, you reinvented yourself many times, even though you kept the same infrastructure. Yeah, and that's a really good point. You know, and I, I kind of look at it two ways. You know, there's the services that we provide and the products, the things that we produce. But then there's also what I put, I think, most of the emphasis on, which is the journey. You know, and it's what do what do our clients, our partners, our vendors, and our team, what do they experience as part of what I describe as our, our daily journey, but then also the project journey. And, you know, from day one, you know, way back when, we actually launched as a graphic design you know, agency. You could do that then. Uh, you cannot just do that now. You know, very rarely can you just do that now. And um, and so in quick order, you know, within I think about a year and a half, um, you know, we added web development into that and then continued to really expand digitally and socially, you know, um, you know, with the years that followed. But I would say, you know, I think the the biggest aspect, because there's so many great agencies out there and there's a lot of people producing a lot of phenomenal work. So the thing that, you know, we, we really wrap ourselves tightly around is what makes us different in terms of that project journey and the daily journey. And it um, it's interesting that the one the one thing that we started off, um, really the impetus for me was, you know, it always worked through a salesperson or an account executive at former positions. And it was um, absolutely less than gratifying. You know, you always felt like you're playing a game of telephone and you weren't at the table all the time. And so things would get lost in translation. And so I was really adamant about, man, you know, I think I can do this better. And it means you need to have the creatives and the strategists around the table, you know, and, you know, Nick's having this account executive person. Um, and so that is absolutely paramount to who we are. It defines the way we operate and the way we, you know, create our journeys with clients. Um, and it continues to this day. And, you know, there was a brief moment that I, I tried and attempted to integrate in more of an account executive type. And I mean, within months, it was just like, yep, nope. We felt the difference. Our clients that had been with us a long time felt the difference. And so to this day, I mean, we we are zealous about that being a really important part of how we how we function and, and how we, we deliver, you know, on, on our promises. Well, I know the project that we had a, the privilege of working with you on that obviously ultimately didn't come to fruition. Uh, the, the two things I noticed about y'all were an amazingly collaborative culture and virtually no silos. And, 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 and it came through in, in the limited time that we worked together loud and clear. And yeah. And so to hear you say that's really, you know, kind of your organizational design, which is, you know, collaborative, no silos, everybody's at the table, everybody's contributing. It's kind of rare today, to be honest with you. I still see the agency, the marketing communications world, still just being a bunch of verticals trying to figure out a way to connect ideas. Uh, and I, I think it's a formula for failure. Uh, but 
Yeah, you, you know, it's interesting. Tell me, tell me, in the seventeen years, g- give me. It's probably like asking you, you know, or people, what, who's your favorite child? But what was one of your favorite campaigns, and why? Oh, great question. And you are spot on. I always, and anytime someone asks me that, like, you're telling me to tell you my favorite child? <laughs> yeah. Um, that doesn't gosh. Work. Well, you know, I got to, I have to look back at, um, there's actually, there would be two. And I think the, the, the one for me that is um, just, it was a game changer in every sense of the way, you know, he, you know, so we launched before, you know, after the dot-com bubble burst and here we are ticking along and 2007 was great. And then 2008 was good, but then 2009 and you, you know, everything just screeched and it literally, I mean, our phones went to, um, it, there was just no phone calls. You heard crickets and I had a partner at the time and, you know, I just remember one day, you know, he was like, Hey, we got a lot of money in the bank. What if we cash? out, we hibernate, and then we relaunch. And I just remember thinking that this partnership's not going to (laughs) work. And that's not what we're going to do. My instinct was, let's dig in and let's, let's figure this out. And, um, about that time the phone rang and it had been a, a former client of ours who was the head of bank of America's community development corporation. He had left and he went to Columbia residential, which is uh, one of the nation's, um, most prolific affordable housing developers and was there now. And they were starting a project in new Orleans. Um, and he was calling to see if we had any interest in being their partner on that. Well, on one hand, I'm hearing crickets. There's no phone calls. Um, the other hand, you know, I'd never done any business before in New Orleans, but absolutely adored this person. He was a wonderful leader. Um, and just, again, every person on his team was always just exemplary. And so the answer was obviously yes, yes, yes. And so we set out to work in New Orleans. Now, here's the catch. This was post-Katrina New Orleans. And from a marketing standpoint, think of it this way. At that point in time, about 50% of um, addresses had been restored mail service. That is how devastated New Orleans still was at that time when we started this project. Um, And so we were entering into a market we had never operated in before. And we were also entering in the market post-Katrina where everything was flipped on its head. And so in terms of market research, um, there really was none. The census data was, you know, wildly inaccurate. There was nothing for us to build upon. So we had to dig in and we had to basically engage in really aggressive um, hand-to-hand combat, if you may, on learning about the market, picking people's brains, getting a feel for where is it today, where might it be going tomorrow. And so I think it was, you know, and, and being a part of that city at, a, at such a crucial moment when it was healing, it was recovering, it was rebuilding, and then also playing a huge part in bringing what remains to be the most successful mixed-income housing that that city has ever seen um, is a huge point of pride, but it also was a huge passion project for us. Um, And affordable housing, um, particularly mixed-income housing, you know, remains to be one of a huge passion of mine because I just see so much positive um, potential and success coming out of that. It is, I think, as close as we can get to uh, creating utopias and communities where, you know, you bring together diverse household income levels, but you do so in a beautiful, um, you know, sustainable kind of way where everyone, if you forge a neighborhood that's truly diverse and vibrant. And, um, and we knocked the ball out of the ballpark on that one. So I think um, we, in fact, you know, for anyone that's familiar with kind of multifamily housing and just, you know, real estate in general, 
I think the performer was roughly, we had about, you know, two and a half years to lease up the first phase, which is about 466 units. Um, we actually pre-leased 80% of that community before it was even open. Um, and we did so by really formulating a, um, a, a wildly, um, you know, vivid and different type of marketing strategy um, and really digging in deep within the community to develop all types of unique grassroots um, marketing tactics in addition to um, brand activation opportunities. So that's definitely a favorite kid. And then um, another quick one would be Project DTO, which was uh, downtown Orlando's um, visioning plan um, and CRA plan. And, and in a nutshell, what made that really special was um, Thomas Chapman, who is the head of downtown Orlando's development board um, and CRA, his charge to us was, hey, you know, this may be a perfunctory urban planning project. Our team was responsible for marketing and community engagement. He's like, I want you guys to make this thing cool. I want you to figure out some of the, the you know, brightest ideas you can bring to the table. Um, and so we had his full support of being creative and, and not treating this as some perfunctory process. And subsequently, we turned that into um, what has been Orlando's, um, or the city of Orlando and downtown Orlando's um, most impressive crowdsourcing and community engagement project to date. We had over um, 6,600 individual citizens engaged in a variety of assignments, activities, and projects uh, that brought to life what everyone's hopes and dreams are for the way downtown Orlando of tomorrow will be. So those are two, two favorite kids. Well, I was recently um, in Orlando. We run a, a tour for uh, ESPN events and Dollar General, and we were at the Citrus Bowl for the Florida-Miami game. And I came I came down a couple of days early and had a chance to go to the United Stadium um, and to watch the real estate development that has come out of that stadium and and a real mixed-use uh, community that is then now growing back towards the Citrus Bowl um, it is a fascinating real estate case study. Um, and, um, you know, that had to be gratifying looking at what was in many ways a displaced area or a downtrodden area, um, but, you know, too many downtrodden areas become so gentrified that we run off people that need lower-cost housing. We, we lose our diversity. We, I live here in Charleston, and we're seeing that dramatically here where the peninsula – there's just no place where poor people can live. The real estate has gone up so high. And then it's very difficult to find, you know, it's it's great to have five-star hotels. It's not great to have people not being able to work at five-star. And, and you were mentioning New Orleans. I'll tell a quick story. We, uh, post-Katrina, the, the athletic directors every year, an organization called NACTA, has their annual convention in June. So Katrina's in September. NACTA honored their contract with New Orleans and brought one of the first major conventions post-Katrina back to New Orleans in June. And I remember being at the Marriott there on Canal Street and asking my waitress that morning, where do you live? Thinking she would say Metairie or you know, the ninth ward. And, and she said, I live in Atlanta. They literally had had to fly in staff to work the hotels and the convention because there were so many 
displaced people during that period. And you saw that firsthand with the real estate development that you did. So, you know, I, I love to do great work, but don't you just love it when you do great work that does great things for other human beings? Absolutely. There is, there is, um, I don't, I get, it's magic. And that's really what we always hope and strive for, you know, are those opportunities. Um, you know, it's, it's affirming and you feel like you're actually making a, a positive difference and a positive impact. Well, y'all have a reputation for being extremely, what I call strategically creative. And that's, that's that's different. You know, I've seen a lot of creative shops that I go, yeah, that was funny, but did, did it do anything? Did it, you know, where's the strategy? Talk about y'all, y'all's creative process, you know, when you take on an assignment like a, a real estate development or a downtown plan or, or, or anything else. Yeah, well, and... You know, so I would, I think the biggest way, and thank you for that, that's a huge compliment because our mantra and our credo is creativity absent strategy is malpractice. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I'm going to steal that. I love that. Go for it. We need more of that in this world because truthfully, again, you know, and, and, you know, I hate to be this harsh, but the reality is if you, if you just want to be creative for the sake of creative, be an artist, you know, be, be a creative that does their own things. But ultimately when you're in a commercial line of business, you have to create an ROI. You know, there has to be a benefit and you have to be able to produce results. And that's where strategy comes into play. Um, and the, the most exciting part is uniting strategy with creativity to make things happen. So, you know, and I think in terms of process, um, you know, you mentioned no silos. That's a huge part of who we are and how we operate. And that's a part of our process is bringing around the table um, diverse disciplines. Even if, for instance, you know, you're involved in, you know, the digital positioning side and we're talking about on the ground, you know, guerrilla marketing activations you still have ideas. You still have contributions you can make. And the truth is, if two heads are better than one, then six are better than two, then 10 are better than six. You know, the idea though with that is you've got to make sure that, you know, you're creating that right environment where people can share ideas. Um, But ultimately, you know, it is starting off with a, you know, debrief on here is what we're trying to accomplish. This is how we're going to judge success. That's the biggest question we ask of any project when we start off is, when we look back, how do we measure success? And then that has to be the seeds by which we begin mm-hmm. to create the ideas and the concepts for where we're going to go next. Um, and then, you know, beyond that, I would say process-wise, um, you know, we we tend to break apart in squads. And our squads are based upon, you know, what type of, of project is it? You know, what are the mm-hmm. end results, you know, that we're, we're seeking to capture? And who's going to be the best leader, you know, on our team based upon, you know, what that trajectory looks like? Um, you know, but again, I, I think it's just all about honoring, honoring what success looks like so that that continues to be our checkpoint along the way. And the other big one, too... Um, actually two parts is creative problem solving. Um, you know, I'm, I'm blessed with a phenomenal team here. Everyone are, they're true professionals, but they're also great human beings. Um, and everyone here, you know, is a creative problem solver. You know, they'll, they're not someone that's going to identify a problem and say, Hey, Stephanie, here's a problem. It's, Ooh, this, this is a challenge, but here's some of the things we can do about it. And, and likewise as well, I think the tough part sometimes in, especially when you're developing 
you know, a strategy and a campaign and there's deadlines involved, but it's also making sure you leave room for that bright idea that may evolve along the way and never closing off and shutting down that faucet and saying, oh, sorry, you know, the strategy's done now. We're moving into this. If an idea comes up and that idea, again, touches touches points on all the ROI and the success, you know, side that you've got to leave room and you've got to save room for how that could be integrated. Well, you know, I, I really believe that where a lot of organizations fail is they, I call it myopic solutions. They, they really think there's only one solution. And, and the truth is there could be multiple solutions. Um, and, and those solutions, as you say, evolve or, uh, along the way. And so being open to any, hey, can we rethink this? Can we, you know, turn the Rubik's Cube this way? Uh, can we look at it from a different perspective? I, I think is is very, very wise. The other thing is, I remember years ago reading a, a management book by a guy named Andrew Janine. Andrew Janine was like Jack Welsh. He was the CEO of a big consortium called ITT Grinnell that owned Stouffer's, you know, they owned hotels and railroads and all kinds of things. And I, I remember reading a big old management book and I only remember one line in the whole book. And the line was, of all the money that's been lost to corporate America because of alcoholism, it's only a fraction that's been lost because of egotism. <laughs> and, 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 and the ability to leave your ego at the door and be open to everybody's input, again, is kind of rare today. You know, we, we deal in this big egos, you know, big creative thinkers. I have all the answers, and that's dangerous. For me, I've been really lucky. Number one, I've never had any of those kinds of answers. But number two, you know, I started my career as a coach, and the first thing you realize as a coach is you better get some players <laughs> and, and, and you better let them play. <laughs> and, and you've done that. I mean, you've done that as the head coach of the agency, but it's interesting that you really started out, you know, almost like an art director or a creative that I'm not saying you backed into strategy, but early on you realized you know, you can be an artist or, 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 or you can be a professional um, and, and you got to decide which one you're going to be. Yeah. And I, I'm, I'm really fortunate. I think the thing that I never tired of and the reason why I've got just as much energy and gusto for this as I did, you know, on, you know, 17 plus years ago is that I get to use both sides of my brain, the right and the left side. And um, I would be completely discontent if I was just a creative. And I would also be completely discontent if I was just a strategist, you know? So uh, again, love what I do. And I'm, I'm just so fortunate I get to do this every day. Well, I, I'm a big believer in entrepreneurism. I mean, I really do believe it's the differentiator in, in our society. Um, it's rare. Uh, there's very few people that want to be you know, entrepreneurs, I like to laugh and tell people that sound you hear at night, that's your heart beating, uh, you know, and uh, I got up in the middle of the night last night because my mind raced and I said, I can lay in bed 
or I can get up and write all this stuff down. And, you know, my wife came into the kitchen this morning and said, uh, you did send me an email at 4.15, didn't you? And I said, yeah. And she said, how long had you been up? I said, long enough to make the coffee. Um, but that's what entrepreneurs do. I mean, you're, you know, there's, you're, there's no safety net. You're kind of out there. But as an entrepreneur that's been successful for 17 years, what are some of the key learnings that you've had along the way you could pass on to some of our listeners? Yeah, you know, one of the biggest ones to me, and it just, you know, dovetails with what you, you just shared, um, you got to, your gut, you do have to follow your gut. And, you know, you that there's it's there for a reason. You know, that voice in the middle of the night, you know, that thing that gets you out of bed, those ideas that, you know, you, you want to express, you know, you've you've got to follow that. You've got to make that happen. It's there for a reason. And, you know, the, the other aspect of that is um, one of the biggest learnings along the way has been, you know, if something scares the hell out of you, it's going to be a game changer. And in that respect, you know, every time that's happened along the way, if it's, you know, unchartered territory, a really complex situation, um, again, just something we've not encountered yet, and we double down and dig in and make it happen, those opportunities, those situations, those challenges have ended up being game changers for us. They have, you know, propelled us into new industries, new clients, um, new realms of business. And I think that's a huge key learning is if if something scares you, granted, not not bad things, but if (laughs) in business, if something scares you, there's a reason. And think about that, dig into that and go towards it. Don't step away from it. Um, you know, and I think a, a really big one too is just the the rate of innovation is only increasing. And so I think a big key learning is wake up every day knowing that you, you there's a lot today you don't know and you've got to figure out and you're going to have to grapple with. And so I think the day that, you know, if the day ever came when I didn't have the energy to do that, I got to hang it up. And I don't ever see that happening. But again, it's that key learning is you've never stopped learning. And in fact, the rate of learning is going to be increasing every single day. So be prepared for that. Well, you have to embrace that. You know, I'm a big believer in lifetime learning. If You can get better every single day. And, you know, one of the things that's really affected our country today is we've had so many people that felt like, hey, a high school education was going to guarantee me a job and a plant for the rest of my life, or a college education was going to guarantee me a job. And you know, today's <clears throat> college student, their skill sets are going to be obsolete five years after college. And so if you're not constantly, you know, evolving and, and lurking and learning, then you're not going to be successful. So I'm going to ask you one more question. What's next for you guys? What's What, what, what do you think is the next frontier for Prismatic? That's a great question. Um, you know, I think the next frontier for us is going to be um, continuing and in, in, in really, I think, making more relationships and inroads um, on a collaborative front with individuals and other businesses. I think that's also something that's a huge change from, from where I started was, you know, it used to be you had to have all these different individuals inside and a part of your company. And the, the reality is you have to have a strong core. You have to have people that are foundational, that have the same mindset and culture, and you're, you're all in it together. But 
the real magic and the real, I think, um, opportunity moving forward is being able to continue to collaborate and expand relationships and partner up um, into new territory, into new discoveries, into new technologies and innovations. Um, and, and I think that's something that you know, obviously it's already started happening for us, but that's just a huge trend of, I think, what's going to continue to occur. And the other part of that is, you know, just the rate of change when it comes to what it takes to hire and retain and fuel um, talented people today. It is a completely different world um, than it was for me even five years ago. Um, and, and I think it's also making sure because again, back to that daily journey or the project journey, you know, you've got to be fully invested with the people around you when you take on those journeys. And, um, and so I would have to say, it's just going to be continuing to, I think, tweak and refine and evolve and advance, you know, what that journey looks like. Well, I, I, I do believe the marketing communications industry is going to have to reflect what the motion picture industry looks like today, which is the collaborative efforts of we have this one film, and I'm going to go get a great cinematographer and a great director and great actors, pull them together, best of class talent, and then they disband and, and move to the, to the next project. And I think you're going to see that with you know talented people. And then the, I'll leave you with one more thought. Great players are hard to coach. <laughs> uh, I mean, they, they are. And, you know, you, 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 I mean, mediocre people are easy to coach. <laughs> the great ones are hard to coach, but that's where you get great work. And, 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 and it's, it's kind of, you know, getting out of their way, giving them enough structure, give, you know. And I, I liked your point about you've got to have the same cultural beliefs and cultural fit because that's critical, but ultimately, um, you got to let great talent be great, and and that's rare today. So yeah, nope, so true. Well, Stephanie, I can't thank you enough for joining us for uh, today, uh, ladies and gentlemen. That's Stephanie Darden Bennett of Prismatic from the Bridge. This was wonderful. I wish I could do this every every day with you. <laughs> Our final segment today is another edition of On the Road with Rick. You've heard me say that New Orleans is one of my favorite food cities, and I could probably do a different favorite restaurant in New Orleans each and every week on this podcast. Now, most everyone knows about the impact of French, Spanish, and African settlers on New Orleans architecture, culture, and yes, cuisine. But three other ethnic groups also played a huge role in the cuisines of NOLA. Firstly were the Yugoslavians, today's modern-day Croatians, who immigrated to New Orleans and brought their fishing expertise. Oysters and fishing are controlled by these folks and their descendants even today. Similarly are the latest immigrants, the Vietnamese, who were also fishermen and now are the leading shrimpers in the area. But the group I want to talk about today is the third group, and these were the Italians, primarily from southern Italy and Sicily that came to America at the turn of the 20th century in record numbers. In fact, many of you may not know this, but in the period from about 1860 to 1930, over two-thirds of Southern Italians immigrated either to the United States or to somewhere else around the world. 
Now, these people were farmers, and they grew tomatoes and other vegetables, but they also ran food stores. And when they came to New Orleans, they either became farmers or they became merchants. And one store has been around since 1906, and that's the Central Grocery that was founded by a Sicilian named Salvatore Lupo. And it's now in the same family for the past three generations. It's located in the French Quarter on Decatur Street. Here they sell imported Italian products, meats, and cheeses. But they are known mostly for their famous muffalata sandwich. It's a round Italian loaf with sesame seeds on both sides. It's got ham, Italian dried salami, provolone cheese, and most importantly, their special olive salad. This is an incredible sandwich in a town famous for poor boys, oyster loaves, and other incredible sandwiches. You grab one and go sit in Jackson Square around the corner, eat on a park bench, and watch people as they go by. It's very special. And wasn't our show also special today? Please tell your friends and colleagues where to find us from the bridge, and we'll see you next week. This has been your captain, Rick Jones, from the bridge. If you like what you hear, please share, subscribe, and leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast directory. Everybody wants me to be what they want me to be. But I can't be nobody else but me. Yeah. I'm sick and tired of trying to Behind, go fishing, rest my mind.